welcome to the Conservative Resurgence Voices podcast. I'm Jeff Wright, one of the regular contributors to the CRV website. And on this episode, I am sitting down with fellow CRV contributor Nate Schloman to talk about the strange phenomenon of women pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention. So let's get it started. Nate Schloman, thank you for being on the podcast, my friend. How are you doing today? Absolutely. Glad to be here. I'm doing good. How are you doing? All right. Now, uh, we're going to get into some of this in a moment, but how close is your church to D.C.? Pretty close. (laughs) We're about two hours. So we are in the suburbs of Richmond, Virginia. Okay. I'm not going to put any words in your mouth, but what I just heard in my head was too close for comfort. (laughs) Too close for comfort. Although it's not really mattering these days when we got Governor Northam here in Virginia. (laughs) It's really the question is, how close are we to Virginia, which is we are in the heart of it. (laughs) Yeah, man, you uh, you do not have an easy road in ministry. Not that I guess any day in ministry (laughs) is particularly easy, but yeah, y'all have some unique challenges. Sure do. Maybe that's something we can talk about at another time because that would be pretty interesting itself. But yep. (laughs) Sure. Well, so let's let's bring the listeners up to speed here. Can you can you introduce yourself to those who are tuning in? My name is Nate Schloman. I am the executive pastor of Village Church. We are an SBC church in the suburbs of Richmond, Virginia. I've been a pastor here for over 10 years now, actually. I was part of a church planning team um, almost 12 years ago that, that moved to the Richmond area to start this church. Uh, we all got jobs in the area, um, started a church very small, actually, in the living room of a house, and um, since then have, have grown to a Pretty good sized church. Um, Ten years later, we're still here, and uh, it's really been been great. We were actually planted through the um, state convention, um, Southern Baptist Conservatives of Virginia. Uh, so we've been an SBC church the whole time, and I'm glad to serve there as executive pastor. Praise the Lord. The reason that we are talking here today is because we are talking with, I guess, depending on who you ask, what may or may not be a problem in the Southern Baptist Convention, (laughs) which is the subject of women pastors. And you are a contributor to Conservative Resurgence Voices. And listener, you should go look up Nate's work there. Uh, The thing I'd tell you to start with, the piece I'd tell you to start with, is titled, What Kind of SBC Will We Be While We Need to Care About Beth Moore Preaching? Um, maybe my favorite section is in the intro there, although the whole piece is great. Uh, the intro does a great job of kind of capturing the issue, though. You wrote that SBC is a big place, 40,000 plus churches. It can and does handle a lot of inconsistency below the surface, mostly out of sight. This is true of any organization of the sides. When an individual church has a woman preach on a Sunday morning, it's an aberration and can be viewed as such. That doesn't make it right, but it explains how this practice can take place in the past and not become the lightning rod issue it has at the moment. But, uh, although the but is not in the text, I, I assume there's a but between yep. the two paragraphs. <laughs> sure. When the most popular, best-selling female teacher in your convention starts preaching on Sunday mornings, this is no longer an aberration. As a convention, we must formally oppose this practice, or we will quickly uh, de facto become a convention that supports women preaching at gathered corporate worship. Uh, yeah. You still feel that way, Nate? I sure do. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, I think... One thing that I hope would be helpful, just kind of having this discussion, that's a great place to start it, is just kind of talking around what is happening in the SBC. Because I think people online probably hear a lot about, okay, there's some questions about women preaching, there's some questions about egalitarianism. Um, but I, I still get the sense, and especially a lot of folks in the pews, just aren't really completely sure what the concerns are 
And what people are, yeah, are just are concerned is the trajectory of the SBC. So I think it'd be helpful just to have an overarching conversation about that without maybe getting into any deep details. I think anything we talk about, we could probably dive into later at a deeper level, but just trying to give folks a overview of what's happening. Well, so I think that's right. Um, just to frame the conversation as sort of a historical narrative, mm-hmm. um, seems like maybe we start with the Baptist faith and message. Does that sound yeah. good? Yep, that sounds good. So I've got that pulled up here, and let me read Article 6 uh, on the church. Okay. And it's it's fairly lengthy, but it's a good article. Uh, New Testament Church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the two ordinances of Christ governed by His laws, exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by His Word, and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. Each congregation operates under the Lordship of Christ through democratic processes. In such a congregation, each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. Its scriptural officers are pastors and deacons. While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. Uh, Nate, do we still believe that? We better believe that. <laughs> I agree, brother. I, agree. <laughs> but I think, I think the, the question is, do our practices you know, portray that we still believe that. That's what's happening. I think there's, and just that last part you read there, there's a whole lot of questions. And I don't think people, I don't think, maybe I'm speaking out of turn here, but I don't think the average person in the SBC understands how many people are questioning what all is involved with the office of pastor is reserved for men. I think there's a lot of wiggle room in that, or, or at least there are folks trying to put a lot of wiggle room in that, whereas maybe you or I don't see a lot of wiggle room there. Yeah, I, absolutely. So let me tell you when this first really hit me as a major issue. Okay. Yeah. And then you fill in and say, hey, I was you know, yeah. on this earlier or whatnot. Um, so I worked at Lifeway. And by saying I worked at Lifeway, I worked at a local bookstore okay. back in the early 2000s. And we were pushing Beth Moore at every opportunity. And I remember, you know, we would be stocking shelves full of Bethmore products, but then there would be an end cap of a Bethmore product. And in our music section, we had a big, huge TV that we would play like Christian videos on. And often it would be a Bethmore video. And I remember sitting mm-hmm. with one of my managers there. I was a pretty young guy. I was in my 20s, uh, early 20s. And, and I said, man, what's the difference between what we're seeing right here and preaching? Um and really, it was kind of a snowball from there up until what I think was not the most recent Mother's Day, but the Mother's mm-hmm. Day the year before, yep. where, uh, you know, I don't follow Beth Moore on Twitter, but it just showed up in my feed that she was joking. I say joking. She was having a laugh with Vicki Courtney about the fact that they were mm-hmm. both preaching Mother's Day sermons that year. Uh, but, you know, don't tell anybody. Ha ha. Giggle, yeah. giggle. Yep, I remember that. And for me, that's when the issue crystallized that I no longer have room to consider that there's some unintentional accidental blurring of the lines. Right. There's no longer sort of this assumption I can grant to Beth that somehow in her mind she distinguishes what she does from preaching. Mm -hmm. Uh, But she is so hardened in this position, and everybody in her life is so on board with her position that she feels free to get on social media and joke with another woman about preaching on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. Yeah. Yep. I think that really did crystallize the issue. And it was was just that that joking manner was just kind of like, we know we're doing something that a lot of folks think is wrong, and we're just going to kind of be flagrant about it. 
Yeah. And that was, you know, that really changes the tone of the whole conversation. And then quickly after that, I mean, Beth Moore was part of a preaching conference. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a very, very large church had her preaching on Sunday morning and went out of their way to clarify that what she was doing was preaching. Um, so all that happened. And I, I remember this was last year at the state convention. Kind of these things were in the water of things being talked about. And I talked to several guys here in Virginia who were confused and were even saying, I don't understand what the concern is um, with Beth Moore, because isn't she just leading big Bible studies and um, speaking at conferences? And I realize some folks you know, aren't comfortable with that, but why are we making such a big deal? They didn't even realize that the issue had definitely kind of changed to one of, do we support uh, women preaching on Sunday morning in the pulpit? They weren't even aware that that's where that had gone. So that was clarifying for me. Yeah, I... I think it was at Birmingham. Uh, I tend to I tend to be at the annual meetings, and I really uh, I really think us not having an annual meeting this year mm. is is going to be rough on the convention. Yeah. But I think it was at Birmingham where a woman stood to propose a modification to the Baptist faith and message mm. to change the phrasing from uh, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture, but uh, she wanted the wording to say the office and function of pastor mm. is limited to men as qualified by scripture, and whoever that sister is. I don't know what her intentions were, but I appreciate her. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's that's one big issue that I think is out there that there's so much to talk about that. But then another part of this that I think a lot of people are very unaware of is there is a whole other section of the SBC that has moved well beyond that. And um, so that's that's an issue of function of pastor and, and can a woman be Beth Moore even. And I'll give her credit for this. Um, she does not call herself a pastor, um, but absolutely. She's fulfilling the function of a pastor and preaching it and being pretty open um, about that. But there's there's a whole other section of folks who would actually say that in the SBC, women can be pastors. Um, so that's another thing that I think people are, are just largely unaware of, but it's out there uh, more than people know, I think, wouldn't you say? Yes. And so maybe that's what we do next. Maybe let's stake out the the polls within the okay. SBC on this issue. So, um, I, you know, you said you don't think that as many people are necessarily aware that there are some who've moved beyond Beth Moore. So I'm going to mm-hmm. save that for last. Okay. Uh, I know that I have personally encountered people who are... Uh, in my neck of the woods, they're not Southern Baptist, but they're, you know, sort of the IFB model of Baptist life. And mm-hmm. they really don't want women saying much of anything on a Lord's Day or in a Sunday school class or anything like mm-hmm. that. Would we call that the most conservative side or do you think there's an even further poll uh, more conservative? I, I mean, I personally would want to put that in an even further poll just because I think at that point you're going outside of Scripture personally. But uh, you know, giving them a fair due, I think they would say they've got text for that. Okay. I don't know. What do you think? Um, that to me, uh, like you, goes beyond the pale. And I'm, this is just one of those deals where the conversation around this is so politicized yeah. that it, it you just feel like you're walking on eggshells trying to talk about it. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of self-consciously trying to refuse to do that. Right. Um, I understand those people and I understand the text they work from. Yeah. Uh, I am persuaded that... You know, Priscilla and Aquila informing Apollos should have some, you know, seat at the table as we think through this. Mm -hmm. Uh, The text where Paul seems to assume there are women prophesying in Corinth has some kind of indication that something was happening where they were literally speaking in uh, right. in the church. Uh, you know, the same same book, though, has uh, that 
this indication that women were disrupting the church. And so, like, I feel yeah. like I'm in I feel like I'm between two ditches there that yeah. uh, I don't want to distribute, you know, theological lockjaw on women right. when they walk through the door of the church. But I also want to be very careful because the Bible says stuff about the dangers of just kind of assuming anything goes. Yeah. I mean, I'm overall persuaded it's an issue of pastoral authority and who can serve in the office of pastor. And well, that's yes. kind of the central the central question that those texts are, are dealing with. And so anytime, and it, you know, you kind of alluded to it, but some, sometimes when it comes down to actual function, we can see things differently and land in different places. But anytime that function is one of authority, which I think unquestionably delivering, you know, the Sunday morning sermon, which I think is an important part of gathering, um, absolutely has authority in it. But then I'm more open to seeing, you know, a prayer or something like that um, is not something of authority. But Yeah, right. Yeah. It's, it's a function of, of uh, a believer in the context of the local church. Right. So I'm with you. That's well said. So I tell you what I want to do, since this is our podcast, we're going to kind of stake that as the middle yep. position, uh, yeah. because, you know, yeah. everything good is found in the middle, right? Uh, <laughs> sure. Where's we said, uh, blessed uh, are the balanced. <laughs> Maybe that's a topic for another time, too, but I'll go <laughs> yeah, with that. For sure. For <laughs> sure. Uh, so what's the far other side of this, where you're saying, uh, you know, people in the convention don't know yeah. that there's been a big movement beyond even yeah. more. Yeah, well, one other side, and this is kind of closer to us, but I still think is over the egalitarian ledge, <laughs> mm. is the side that says that only that the, the Baptist faith in Message 2000 only applies to the senior pastor, in that there can be other pastors in a church that are women that that doesn't apply to. And I think you and I both take issue with that. We think there's just one office of pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't kind of recognize these different, different levels or offices of pastor. So um, but that's an issue, and that's where debate's happening, and you could absolutely stake out folks that are, are making that claim. Then, um, to just go all the way, um, there are plenty of SBC churches that have uh, female senior pastors, well, female lead pastors, whatever they might title them, but that are are the, the ones delivering the sermon you know, regularly at the gather corporate worship every Sunday. So that's out there, too. Yeah, and honest to goodness, um, if you would have set me down two years ago and said, that's in the SBC, yeah, I, it would have raised my eyebrow a little bit. Well, and I think we could be helpful in explaining how that has happened. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I think this is—I think there's a lot of people that don't understand how that's happened. And it's actually not that complicated. I don't think it should be, <laughs> but it's not that complicated. And here's what it is. You know, you say, well, doesn't everyone, um, to be a Southern Baptist, agree with the Baptist Faith and Message 2000? Well, it's not that cut and dry. And mm-hmm. I think that's what people don't understand. And so let's go over the history of that a little bit to explain how that has gotten to be in our convention. Um, I think most people are aware of the conservative resurgence and what happened in the 80s, 90s, kind of saved the SBC from theological liberalism that was happening. Uh, I don't think a lot of people, and especially um, my age and younger, I'm getting close to 40 now, um, especially the younger guys, kind of realized the full scope of what had happened in SBC to necessitate um, the conservative resurgence. I think you I have the impression we get these kind of boogeymen of liberalism and, you know, not holding to the inerrancy of Scripture, which absolutely was a problem. But I don't think folks realize all that also went along with that. And in the 60s and 70s, um, our seminaries were almost completely taken over by egalitarianism. Um, And that was just kind of a part of the bigger whole of their disregard for the authority of Scripture. But it was absolutely there. 
And so you can even, uh, interesting resource on this, um, go to YouTube and look for the documentary Battle for the Mines. Um, have you seen that? Yeah, I saw that once um, the the founder of CR Voices, Chris Bolt, um, kind of directed my attention to it. I didn't re- I didn't know it existed. I didn't know it was on YouTube. And man, that is an eye opening piece of. So it's actually made from the liberal perspective, although it's it's pretty fair, I would say, in how it documents everything. But it, it shows the history of Southern Seminary and, and Al Mohler. Um, kind of coming in there as the president and, and riding the ship, so to speak, in terms of um, all kinds of things. But one issue that was very much front and center was egalitarianism in female pastors. And so you'll see Molly Marshall on there kind of leading the way for um, resisting the conservative resurgence. And it's, it's interesting. But so what happened is conservative resurgence was victorious. I mean, they, they were able to get the, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 um, done and, and um, egalitarianism was clarified that that is not who we were as a convention. The word's not in there, but what would be kind of described as the position of complementarianism um, was written into that that document. But and this is what people don't understand: that was only for the national convention and our entities. So, um, and that's a good thing. All the seminaries had to uh, to agree to the Baptist Faith and Methods two thousand. Uh, International Mission Board, North American Mission Board, all down the line. Um, you know, anyone who was appointed or employed um, by the National Convention had to adhere to this document. That did not, though, apply to all the autonomous churches. Uh, and I don't think people understand that. And it also did not apply to all the state conventions. Um, they did not have to adopt the Baptist Faith of the Message 2000. And so many churches still adhere to the, the 1963 Baptist Faith and Message. Um, and even there are some churches that even don't, don't hold to any particular um, Baptist doctrine. That's, that's allowed to cooperate um, with the Southern Baptist Convention. And so that's how you end up with a whole bunch of churches that are part of the SBC, but are even full egalitarian. Uh, another interesting wrinkle in that is um, most of the state conventions did adopt the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. But there were a few holdouts um, that were very liberal and did not do that. And so in Texas and in my state of Virginia, um, that actually led to state convention splits, where there are two state conventions, one that is liberal and egalitarian and um, holds to lots of other liberal theology also, and um, has the 1963 document as their um, convention document. And then there's a, a new, more conservative convention that holds to the 2000 document. So that has allowed a large number of churches um, at the local level um, to be egalitarian. And listener, if you're kind of catching up on this, as, as Nate said, there's there, there's a big ship called the Southern Baptist Convention. And some of the people involved uh, maybe doesn't don't know all the, the history that, that we've even been alluding to here. So if you don't know the name Molly Marshall, you need to look up Molly Marshall. She was, I think, the the president of Central uh, Theological Seminary up until 2020. Uh, you need to go find that document, The Battle for the Minds, the documentary. Um, there's there's good books on this subject, The Baptist Re- Reformation by Jerry Sutton, maybe. can't remember off the top of my head. But uh, one thing that this podcast might do for you, if this is kind of new to you, is function as a bibliography. And take a few notes mm-hmm. there and spend some time on Google and, and, and give it a read. So what, Jeff, what have you kind of 
learned, and I know you're in a very similar boat to me, <laughs> um, the last few years in regards to the number of Southern Baptist churches um, that are all the way over on the far side of the spectrum we laid out that actually have uh, female pastors installed at their churches. Well, there's a couple different, couple different things that I've learned, and they may be worth further comments or not. But one, I have found that not only are people advocating for what we've called an egalitarian position here, which um, is the idea that that men and women are largely interchangeable in their vocational roles within the church. Um, not only are there egalitarians present in the convention, but they're very vocal. They're very activist. And they want to move the Southern Baptist Convention mm-hmm. in practice and confession, I think, toward their their position. And so this is not a this is not like a, a benign oddity. Yeah. Uh, and then, two, I've also seen that this issue has gotten intertwined with other important issues in the life of the convention, evangelicalism and society at large. And so the idea that women should be free to preach on the Lord's Day to the gathered congregation kind of gets wrapped up into themes of racial reconciliation and uh, you know views on women uh, as image bearers who hold dignity in general. So the... I guess the two things, if I could summarize what I've been saying here, is that the egalitarians are mobile and active, and they have an aim in mind that they're pursuing. And two, the issue does not stand alone. It's sort of mm-hmm. being sold in a bundle with other ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I would even, just to kind of hammer home that first point that you made there, um, just some some local examples. I, I don't want folks to get the impression that we're just cherry-picking just a couple egregious examples in that that it's not a, a bigger issue. Um, even it's here locally in the Richmond area. I on the way to our church, I pass a church that's an SBC cooperating church that has a, a female senior pastor. Um, less than a mile from where our church is, there's another SBC cooperating church. And um, a man is a senior pastor of that church, but his wife, believe this or not, is a senior pastor of a local Methodist church. Hmm. Um, that's just two examples within a five-mile radius of where I live. I think um, some folks have done some some investigating just based on data that's freely available on the SPC website. And they came up with, what, I think 500 churches. Am I correct on that? Something like that. That yeah, had, uh, that, that number sounds right. On staff. Yeah, it was around there. Um, and I don't think that investigating, I don't mean that in a bad way at all, um, is exhaustive. Um, I, there's another, a, one of the biggest churches in our state has now decided that the husband and wife are, are both senior pastors of their church. Um, and that is an SBC church. So this is not just some obscure thing that we're pulling out to try to make a, a theological point. Um, it's a real issue. Yeah, so listener, if you want to Google that, um, there's a SBC facing website that has published, I think Nate's right, 500 people who, uh, and churches, just based on what their website says about their own church, yeah. have women serving in the office of pastor. Um, Nate and I were working on a project like that earlier, just trying to get our heads around the scope. And I remember getting through uh, one sort of southern state, you know, that's that Southern Baptist Convention home territory, one southern state, and I think I had a list of 112. And so I almost wonder if I wonder if it's not larger than even that yeah. 500 number suggests. I, I would guess. I would guess. Well, so I think probably you being closer to a major metropolitan area than me are seeing seeing this in full bloom mm-hmm. more than I am. 
Yep. But what seems to be happening around me is that there is, uh, I would you know use the language of a drift, or I may even say an erosion, mm-hmm. because churches are looking for a way, looking for a way to, I think if, if I could be charitable and use their own language, empower women, honor women, give women a seat at the table in decision making. And yeah. everybody knows in institutions that process involves titles, mm-hmm. and the church is kind of habitually in the business of inventing titles, right? Like, I don't, I don't want to pick a fight here. I don't think this right. is necessarily wrong, but, you know, find youth minister in right. the canon, right? And I mean, I'm a guy who did youth ministry, loved youth ministry. I'm just saying we, we make up stuff in the institution to say this person has authority and a role here. Mm-hmm. And so in the churches around me, what I'm seeing is these titles are being given to women, and they are generally built on synonyms within the church, for what you would normally give to a pastor. Yep. So yeah, minister, right? Yeah, I'm seeing it too. And I think um, it's no no secret the culture is pressing on this issue. Culture's pressing on a lot of issues right mm-hmm. now. But um, increasingly, and I think this just tends to bigger the metro area you are, but it's it's coming everywhere. Um, the idea that the office of pastor is reserved for men is not culturally popular. Sure. And churches, and I, I can even say in the, you know, the little over 10 years that we've been a church in this area, um, that issue is much more polarizing now than it was when we started. So we've seen a huge movement there. And so I think churches are, and I'm, not everyone, I want to say that, but it's there's no doubt that churches are looking for some cover <laughs> from that um, cultural stigma of of reserving the office of pastor for men. And so they are looking for ways that they can try to stay within what I, I will give them charitably is a desire to, to stay faithful to Scripture, um, but find a way for the culture to say, hey, we, we actually are, are putting women in these roles. And so, yeah, you end up with, and I, I have multiple examples of this, um, female ministers just all across a staff page. And the thing is, when you drill down and look at that, the function and what they are, are practically doing are positions that, that would have been reserved for male pastors. And so then you really just have to ask the question, what are we doing? I think. Yeah, I'm with you. Now, the other thing is, you know, the qualifier of, which has been used for years with male leadership in the church. So, you know, even some like weird ones like pastor of finance, which I don't I don't mean to offend anybody out there who has a pastor of finance or is a pastor of finance. I'm just saying like it's weird to think of pastoring finances. You know, um, traditionally, if you look at the idea of the pastor as shepherd and overseer. Um, So we've had that. We've had that practice in the church. And I think minister is one of the ways that sort of these these churches are looking to legitimize the role of women in their congregations. Yeah. But pastor of is another way. Yeah. I'll say another way that I've seen, um, and this really kind of bounces off the CEO model of of church leadership is um, only have, you know, a, a fairly large church only having one pastor. And then everybody else on staff is a, a director of something or a you know, and anyway, we have directors at our church, but that's something we we reserve for folks who are not pastors. But I think if you if you look at a large church and they just have one pastor and twelve directors, um, yeah, that's really hard to to understand that as a a biblical model of pastoral leadership. And so part of the problem is we we started losing this this debate, so to speak, when we 
jettisoned um, biblical ecclesiology, but that's probably a whole other topic, brother. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, bad ecclesiology, you know, when when days are easy, ecclesiology is something that's easy to ignore. Uh, when things get tough, your ecclesiology is going to come back and insist that you pay attention to it. Yeah, yep. Um, and that actually has happened in my area, too. So um, we have seen... Uh, one thing in particular that I'm thinking of, a church got involved in a controversy where a, a lady was functioning as what they called a service leader. And I, I'm familiar with service leaders. These are people who kind of function as an MC for the events of corporate mm. worship. Uh, and, and that can be good or bad. So the service leader could be an elder who's not preaching that day, who comes up to mm-hmm. lead the pastoral prayer, uh, you know, inform the congregation about what's entailed with worshiping the Lord through giving. I mean, I'm not saying that the model itself is bad, but, sure. uh, you know, you install someone in the position with the title leader of the service. Well, I don't blame anybody for thinking, oh, that's right. of pastoral significance. Right. Um, and so... Uh, again, I, I, I can't look at a church in our association or any neighboring association that I'm aware of and say, oh, yeah, there's a woman there functioning as senior pastor. But the minister thing, the pastor of thing, the service leader thing, all that is very much present. And yeah. it's it's that drift or that erosion we were talking about. Yeah, I think the thing to really hone in on is, is the purpose of what we're doing with this ministry position to make it appear to the world that we are not being exclusive um, to the office of pastor um, to mail. And, you know, I'm not, we cannot judge someone's motives, but when we start to see this over and over and over again, I think as a whole, without judging any individual motives, we can start to say we got an issue here. Um, broadly speaking. Well, okay. On that front, I'm just going to ask you a pointed question yeah. and feel free to be like, you know what, Jeff, I'm not getting in trouble okay. over that. You answer. Um, is this an aesthetic issue? Is this, like you said, largely about having a, uh, uh, a countenance facing toward a culture that is not happy with some of the church's priorities and trying to say, hey, don't hate us so bad? Yeah, well, no, that's important. And I'm not afraid to answer that. I, th- I think it often starts there. I think the reason why we're so concerned is it doesn't stop there. Yeah. So, and not that that would be fine if it did. It's still not a good reason to do something. Um, but what hap- I, what we've seen happen in, his- in history over and over again is if you cave on this issue where the culture is pressuring, um, you're going to eventually cave everywhere else. And that's what happened to all the mainline denominations. Um, that's what had happened in the Southern Baptist Convention before the conservative resurgence. So, you know, the hermeneutic that gets you from 1 Timothy 2.12 saying, I do not permit women to teach or exercise authority over a man, and gets you to change that to, I do permit those things. Mm-hmm. You know, that hermeneutic is going to take you all the way through liberal theology in every other place. And so that's why this is such a pressing concern. And a lot of those churches have not gone there yet. But what we're kind of saying is if you make that move for the aesthetic reasons, because you want the culture to perceive you as being, frankly, egalitarian, that's what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. We want the culture, even though we're trying to say we're not, we want the culture to think we are egalitarian. I'm pretty sure you're finding yourself making all kinds of other compromises. Yeah, I think that's well said, and I appreciate the answer. I I guess, uh, not that you would disagree with this, I just want to get it on the record, though, that I do think there is a countenance that is inward-facing that's also probably pushing on uh, the clarity of our commitment to a biblical model of leadership, and that is for the guy who is in a church— and he looks around and he sees one or more women who are very intelligent, mm-hmm. uh, very competent, 
maybe employed as teachers outside of the church, like literally maybe making their money teaching people. Yeah. And they look and they say, I've got a talented person. They've got giftings for teaching. Uh, they, they have a personal charisma. What do I do with them? How do I get them in the game for the health of the church? Yeah. And again, to an ecclesiology issue, we say, well, we got to make a minister of something, mm-hmm. or pastor of something. And so I do think that there's probably kind of a sympath, a more sympathetic yeah. element here where a pastor is not necessarily self-consciously trying to appease a world that despises the church. But he's saying, like, I just want to get the gifts that are in the congregation employed in making disciples. Right. Absolutely. And I think you know, we just got to have a better Titus 2 theology there and trusting that that is a good use of clear gifts. And I think that's where we I think we struggle there. And I, I'd put myself in that category. But I think um, and we could do a much better job of just explaining um, how women can be so valuable to the church exercising those gifts um, within a biblical framework. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I think we kind of plow past Titus 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's not a ton of attention given to it, right? So when you're right. outlining Titus 2 for your sermon series, uh, this is not a major theological heading like, say, uh, you know, Ephesians 2, the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile in Christ. And so it's just there. I think, though, it's there quickly because Paul assumed the churches of the day would know, oh, yeah, this is a great blessing to the church and invaluable ministry. So I'm going to highlight it and not spend a ton of time because there's other stuff to address that, that needs more attention. And mm-hmm. in some ways, I think that we've allowed it to be to be minimized in the eyes of our people. Um I'm really thankful for the yeah. women uh, in the churches I grew up in, the churches I've pastored or worked in that were really serious about discipling women. Yeah. Now, I think that kind of brings up another aspect of this whole conversation that would be helpful to lay out, even though we cannot go into depth on it. But that is that this is also part of the um, internal complementarianism debate of what is complementarianism, first of sure. all. Uh, not that we really got to go there, but then the, the question of narrow and broad complementarianism. And that that is really, I think, fueling what is ending up being a slide, you mentioned that earlier, towards egalitarianism. And so to even where we, I think we would both agree that if you go with a, a super narrow complementarianism that, that sees God's instruction to the roles of men and the roles of women only applying to the home and to the church and having no implications outside of that. If you kind of just relegate um, a biblical anthropology to just those areas, you've made God arbitrary, first of all, um, into to why he's giving men certain functions and why he's given women certain functions. And then people are really quickly going to start asking the question, well, if if, you know, the way God has created me as a man, the way God has created my wife, for example, as a woman, if that has no implications to our life outside of the home and church, quickly you're going to question implications inside the home and church. And so that whole conversation, which, again, huge topic that we surely don't even have time to fully develop here, I think that plays into um, the egalitarian conversation also in a huge way. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the—I'm uh, trying to think of the— the various adjectives, hard or soft complementarianism, right? Yeah, you'll hear that too. Yep. And then what was the what were the ones you used? So I like broad and narrow. Okay. And um, Kevin DeYoung has a really helpful sermon on this. It's called uh, The Beauty of Broad Complementarianism. 
And I just like those terms because the the idea behind narrow is narrow is just kind of narrowly focused in on just these two specific areas, the home and church. And broad is kind of understanding that these teachings about what is a man, what is a woman, have more broader implications um, throughout all of society. So I, I personally prefer that language. Of course, then you've also got those that don't like the language of complementarism at all and want yeah, to talk yeah. about about patriarchy or something like that. I'm personally comfortable kind of using that language because that's that's where our church, and I mean the North American church is, but um, yeah. Yeah, I'm very comfortable with uh, complementarianism as well in, in sort of a – it's 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 a way to say something minimal, right? Like uh, mm. more should be said, but clearly, yeah. scripture design, uh, scripture's revelation says that men and women are designed, in some sense, to complement one another as they both bear the image of God. Yeah. So I'm comfortable with it too. Now I'm gonna, I'm not gonna criticize Kevin DeYoung. I think he's one of the good guys. He's smarter than me. He loves Jesus more than me. I'm thankful <laughs> for that too. But where I have run into the, I mean, I actually, I am, I'm in print describing them as scare adjectives. Mm-hmm. And listener, you know, Nate can't carry all the freight of what I wrote, but I wrote on the CR Voices website back in November of 2019, a piece called Lines Are Being Drawn in the SBC's Battle for the Credibility of the Bible. And if you're thinking like, hey, I want to see specific names here, that's a place you can go because I've got tweets and whatnot linked to. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea that I have seen where complementarianism is attached to uh, hyper or mm, yeah. hard yeah, it's an attempt to shift the public perception of the term complementarianism. Yep. And so again, this is me going on the record. Nobody else has to bear my weight. But when you see hyper and hard attached to the term uh, complementarianism, what I think they're trying to do is redefine complementarianism. Yep, I'm with you. And so what has always historically been thinking like the Danvers statement uh, from the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Mm-hmm. What has historically been recognized as the complementarian position is now having these scare adjectives attached of hard and hyper fundamentalist, things like that. These big, scary descriptors yeah. in order to make us think that what has always been complementarianism is now some scary, repressive ideology that has been hijacked rather than just the you know the the continuation of the tradition of complementarianism so then soft or broad or i don't know what a good adjective uh, antonym for hyper is Mm-hmm. Uh, placid. Yeah. I don't know. Um, that is a re. It, it's an effort to rebadge egalitarianism yep. under the complementarian heading. Absolutely. And what what you're seeing a lot of is those that would define what I would say is just plain complementarianism as hyper complementarianism. Um, their brand of complementarianism really is functional egalitarianism, and that's re- that's what ends up happening pretty quickly. Um, so we, I think it's fine to just state that that's what we're looking at. Yeah. Yeah. So Nate, I guess with, um, you know, people listen to this, maybe they may be listening to us saying quite in, in frustration, Hey, what do you, what do you say should be done and should not be done? Right. Yeah. And you've said yeah. we, the purpose of this and the time frame available to us is not to sort yeah. of give a theology of complementarity. Right. Um, but let's maybe do some resources and start the conversation. So I just mentioned yeah. Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Mm-hmm. I think Owen Strain is the president now. Correct. 
Yep, yep. And I was going to mention he's he's got good resources. I really enjoyed his book, The Grand Design, and then he just came out with a rather large book called Reenchanting Humanity. That I have not gone through all of it, but I've seen some of it. It's excellent. Yeah, it's actually sitting right here in my right hand as nice. we're recording, and it is great. Uh, I'm thankful for Owen's work. I mean, the Baptist Faith and Message, right? We, we yep. go there. Um, so I think we have talked about this sort of in the podcast. For me, the the discussion starts with who stands before the body on the Lord's Day as the congregation is gathered mm-hmm. to declare the Word of God in an authoritative sense, in the thus saith the Lord sense. Mm-hmm. Is is that where you start, or would you say, hey, actually, I think you need to start asking the question in the local church in a different area? I think it's fine to start there. I just think we need to recognize that we need to start there and continue on through um, what is the office of pastor? Like, what what is the office of pastor and how how are we going to define that as a convention? Because I do, you know, going all the way back to the beginning, um, you know, you read the Baptist Face in the Message 2000. And it says that is the, the, the phrase that it uses, the office of pastor is reserved for men or something close to that. and how loose are we going to be with that as a convention? So certainly I would, I think that we should be as clear as that includes the function of pastor, which includes what you just articulated and how crucial, you know, just the authoritative declared word is at the, you know, the the church corporate worship gathering. Certainly it includes that, but we've also seen how many churches are, are going beyond that to even include all these other roles of pastor um, as long as they're not the senior pastor. And I just, we've got to get to where we have some agreement on that in the SBC, because you know I look at the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, and I just don't see it limiting itself to just one office of senior pastor. Um, so I think we, we need clarification there. Sure, sure. Well, and this maybe will catch you a little cold, but just to try yeah. to be practically helpful to people. Yeah. Um, if you are sitting somewhere listening to this podcast and this is a new issue for you and it's sort of dawning in your mind, you know what? My church has minister of, pastor of, you know, leader of. And I kind of want to make sure that that we're not drifting, we're not eroding. Maybe, Nate, let's give them some tips on how to respectfully, but also mm-hmm. clearly, approach yeah. church leadership and say, where does our congregation stand on this? Yeah. Um, and you never know exactly um, what the kind of language is that, that your pastors are comfortable using. And so you want to be respectful there. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if they are familiar with these kind of terms of broad complementarianism, narrow, that might make this conversation easier. But, I, you know, if I was, I, I'm not, I don't think you should Walk up to your pastor and accuse them of gross liberalism because they have ministers. Don't do that. That's that's not respectful. It's not helpful. But or maybe think, the woman occupying a minister of position, like you don't oh, don't ambush. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it is reasonable, and, and most any good pa- I'll say this: any good pastor I know would love to have a conversation with anyone in their congregation about their views on complementarianism. I I love it when people ask me about that in my church. And so I would start there. I would say, hey, where do we stand on complementarianism? I, I hope that you'll get a good and helpful answer by asking that question. Um, if you don't, that says something. <laughs> yeah. Because um, by the, the way that that question is answered or the willingness to talk about that will tell you you know, what this whole minister thing at the church is or whatever else the issue might be. Um, you know, if they if they are comfortable talking about that and they've got a good, robust answer, 
um, then I wouldn't be nearly as concerned if that question was dodged. Yeah, that's super helpful. And uh, you you sort of implied this. I just want to make it explicit. Christians mm-hmm. have an obligation to believe the best about other Christians. Yeah. And that should certainly extend to the, the shepherds of your local congregation. Yeah. Now, we all know it, it can turn out that the shepherd turns out to be a wolf. I mean, that's on the table, sure. but we're going to assume the best. Um, I don't. And I will say, and I, I try to say this frequently, but I'm sure this is true of you, Jeff. I love talking to folks in my congregation about this stuff. Yes. I love it. And so I think sometimes people don't realize that this is not a burden. It is not a burden to, to ask to, to talk to me about these things. And so I would hope that that's true of any good pastor. I mean, we, we love our people um, and we want to talk about this stuff. Yes. And, and just to kind of tease that out a bit, we think biblical doctrine leads to human flourishing. Yeah. And so if if your pastor gets a chance to help you connect the dots and really swim in rich theological waters, he's going to do that because he loves you. and He wants you to have the yeah. fullness that is available to those who honor Christ. Yeah, the key there is is approach. You know, make sure that you're approaching in a, a teachable way, a way that really wants to know. Um, you know, don't come at this accusatory of I've got something to, sh- to tell you about this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's not helpful. Yeah. And so the prep work that I would recommend, uh, listener, is one, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 is available online. Uh, Google that and go read Article 6. And when you're done with Article 6, look right down below it if you're not familiar with the document, because the confession has all the proof texts, the scripture references that the conclusions of the uh, of the confession are built upon. Right. So for Baptists, confessions aren't ultimate. Scripture is ultimate. Uh, confessions help us summarize what scripture says on a given topic. So go read the texts that are listed under Article 6 in the Baptist Faith and Message, if you're thinking you you need to have a conversation with your church leadership, and then Google the Danvers Statement and read the Danvers Statement and read the scriptural references there. And so that way you will be, you'll have all this opportunity to just read the Bible, which is a good thing. It's a net win all all over. You'll be immersed in some of the best uh, articulations of what the Bible has to say about uh, the complementarity between man and woman, and then when you go to your pastor, you're either going to have an opportunity to rejoice. And, and you know, we hope that 99.9% of the conversations that may come out of this podcast are going to be a, a brother rejoicing with his pastor, a sister rejoicing with her pastor about the goodness of God's design uh, from the shared material of Scripture. But if if it's that, you know, if it's that that. One-tenth of a percent, and you realize, uh uh-oh, we're in some trouble here. Well, you're going to want to have those resources in your head, fresh in your mind, to draw on. Mm -hmm. I have one more thing here. Yep. So we are, you know, conservative resurgence voices. We are interested in, you know, um, maintaining the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention, maintaining and perpetuating that. I do think that just stepping back, one thing that we do need to recognize as a large, this is now outside the local church level. But we've got to deal with this issue of that we are not as unified of a convention mm. around the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 as we purport to be. So yeah. I am so I'm so grateful that everyone on a national level has to adhere to that statement. Because often when you bring up, here's why I'm saying this: when you bring up these questions of what about this encroaching egalitarianism, often what you hear is, "Well, everyone agrees with the Baptist Faith and Message 2000." But that's not as true, I think, as we pretend that it is. And we, we need to deal with this issue of, the, and I'm not exaggerating this number, the thousands of local churches that do not adhere to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And I just, 
uh, at some point, this is going to come back to bite us if we don't deal with it. Um, or is already or is us. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And I just, we need to, we need to get the word out so that people understand. I, I can't tell you how many times I talk about this topic and people have no idea that there are other doctrinal statements that cooperating Southern Baptist churches can adhere to. And it, it, the thing is, I think we, we treat it, or at least, and I'll include myself in this, although I don't think this anymore, <laughs> but we treat it as as long as the national level leaders are fine everything else is going to be fine. Mm. And that works at a time when culture is not pressing against the church like it is. But when culture is pressing against the church on this issue, all of a sudden these thousands of, of other church, local churches that are not holding to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, that, that's going to start bubbling up. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing. I think that's a lot of what we're seeing is that, that we never fully dealt with that issue um, 30 years ago and it's bubbling up. And so I think the question we're being confronted with now is, are we going to, are we going to finally deal with this issue? For sure. And look, as the more radical member of this uh, conversation, here, <laughs> uh, if you know Southern Baptist history, you know, we have a precedent for people saying, yes, I affirm the document right. and redefining everything within the document. If they even care to be that consistent about it and then going and teaching stuff that's radically inconsistent with the document. Yep. And so, you know, even the idea that, well, all the national leaders are united on this front, right. that's much more tenuous than I think just the naked statement. You know, in my mind, that's much more tenuous than just the naked statement implies. Yeah, no, absolutely. That We, we need clarification. Just the fact that that this is being questioned and asked, what does what does the the two thousand statement mean? And we got to clarify it, and that that has been I will say that's been frustrating as a local church pastor, just seeing the dodges on clarifying that. Um, because how can we have unity if we're not clarifying you know something so basic and what we mean by that? For sure, brother. For sure, I think sort of winding towards the end yeah. here. For me, again, wanting to encourage our listeners. The thing we want to really be on guard against is ever being embarrassed by something the Bible says. Mm -hmm. God help us if we're ever embarrassed of something the living God has made clear in His Word. Uh, but also, God help us if we're ever laughing about it. Yeah. And yep. I, I want to grant. I want to grant that. You know, I talked about Beth Moore and Vicky Courtney laughing. I want to grant they may have been laughing at what they understood a wrong interpretation or understood to be a wrong interpretation of the Bible. I want to grant them that in Christian charity, but the, the attitude of the scoffer standing over and against the word of God is present in the church. Mm -hmm. It may not be any name we've mentioned directly here, but it is present in the church. And that's maybe the, you know, we talked about aesthetic issues. Mm -hmm. That's the aesthetic issue. That's going to raise my red flag the quickest and sound the alarm the most loudly. Yeah, I agree. Well, Nate, thank you for being so generous with your time, man. Yeah, this was great. Hope to do it again sometime for sure. Absolutely. So if our listeners want to keep track of you uh, outside the world of the podcast, are you on social media? I am. I am on Twitter at Nate Schloman. And uh, yeah, I'd love to see you there. Yeah, give that guy a follow. Uh, I am at Right Jeff and Conservative Resurgence Voices is at Voices under CR. <laughs> I said under. Voices <laughs> underscore CR on Twitter. So Voices underscore CR. You'll get uh, updates if you follow there on anything that's being published on the site as well as future podcasts. Oh, there you go. Strange stuff. Clearly, our convention has some work to do in clarifying what our confessional document means when it says that the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. 
Drop by the CRV website at crvoices.org. Click the tab at the top labeled Contributors. Scroll down to Nate's profile. If you'll click on his name there, you'll be taken to the pieces he's written for CRV, including the one mentioned in this episode. What kind of SBC will we be while we need to care about Beth Moore preaching? And that's going to wrap up this episode of the Conservative Resurgence Voices podcast. For everyone at CRV, this is Jeff Wright, wishing you all the best in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 